0: one man writes the following in our nation of fast foods and quick fixes the great hope of americans is overnight change many are too impatient to wait for anything and too lazy to work long and hard to make it happen we want what we want when we want it and the sooner the better which explains our constant pursuit of hurry up formulas everything from diet fads promising rapid weight loss to immediate financial success through clever schemes captures our fancy, and gets our vote. The famous showman, P.T. Barnum, knew what he was talking about, didn't he? Promise instant anything and some sucker will bite. Everybody, it seems, expects instant transformations. All of this reminds me of one of my all-time favorite stories from my days back in Pennsylvania, where folks from West Virginia were the focus. They used to be the brunt of our jokes, but being politically correct, they were the focus of our jokes. The story is told of a fellow who was raised so far back in the hill countries of West Virginia, he had never been to a city, had never seen any lights, had never seen all the conveniences that are found that we take for granted. Lived in a place where there was outhouses and no running water, indoor plumbing, or anything like that. He grew up in that area, met a gal, and ultimately they were married. Uh, they, they had a child not long after that whom they creatively named Junior. So Ma and Pa and Junior spent the next 16 years of their life continuing the lifestyle that they had been used to. But as Junior approached his 16th birthday, Pa began to get concerned. He was concerned because Junior would probably end up having to leave their their local community to go into the big city to get a job because the economy was such that that was going to have to take place for him to survive. Pa was concerned because Junior was ill-prepared for the trip that one day he'd have to make to the city, so he came up with a game plan. The game plan would be that they would save their money, and they would save it to the point where they would have enough money to go into town, stay at a fancy hotel, get to see what was going on, and he would then begin to explain to Junior kind of the run of the land and how things would take place. Three years passed. Finally, they had saved their money. They loaded up the old pickup truck, and Pa and Ma and Junior headed down into the city. As they were approaching the city and they saw the light and, the, and all the traffic and everything that went along with it, Pa got a little concerned. He pulled over to the side of the road and he said, You know what, Mom, I'm, Ma, I'm a little concerned about what's going to happen here. So when we get into the town, when we get to the hotel, we want you to stay in the truck. And Junior and I will go ahead and ahead to make sure everything's okay. Sure enough, they pull up to this hotel, pull the old pickup truck next to it. He looks over and says, Ma, you stay here. Junior and I are going to go check it out. So they go walking up to the door and they step on a mat and the doors open wide and they're just amazed by this. They walk in and they see chandeliers just like the ones that we have hanging here. (laughs) They're just amazed by these things, you know. Three stories up, there they are in a disco ball on top of it. And they're looking, they're taking it all in, and they're just amazed. There's an indoor shopping mall inside of this big hotel, and they look to the right, and, and, and Junior's like, Pa, look at this, and he looks over, there's a skating rink, and it's indoors, skating, ice skating. Man, they're just un- they're just taking it all in. They can't believe what's happening. And as they're looking at all this, they hear this noise behind them, and they see this contraption, and they would see people walk up, they'd push a button, and the, the doors would open from the center to the outside. People would get in, they'd turn, they'd push another button, the doors would close, and those people would disappear. And they just can't understand what in the world is going on. And sure enough, just as they were looking at all this, this little old lady in a walker goes walking over. And she pushes the button. She turns around. No one gets in with her. She pushes another button. The doors close. She disappears. Twenty seconds later, the doors open. The most beautiful woman that they've ever seen. The most beautiful woman that Paul and Junior have ever seen come walking out. And Paul looks at Junior and says, Quick, Junior, go get Mama out of the truck. And every time I I think of that story, it reminds me that, you know, it seems like everybody these days is looking for a room like what Papa thought that he found. You know, that room where you can push the right button and, and you wait momentarily, the doors of opportunity slide open, and then, wow, you know, there's click, there's magic, and it happens instantly, instant whatever As I've been watching the account of the war in Iraq, it's amazing to me how often they show public opinion polls as if somehow that really makes any difference. If the cause is righteous, it really doesn't make much difference. But they show it on a regular basis to help us to see that, you know, as long as things go quickly, then everyone's in favor. You know, we want to have a war and we want it to be over by maybe mid-next week. You know, and it's just amazing to me that the mentality that we have, it's like instant everything. We have couples who get married, they want to have an instant marriage. They want to have the same thing that their mother and father have had after 30 or 40 years of hard work and commitment and dedication and going through the trials and tribulations that come along the way and they want everything right now. We've bought into this in our culture that everything is instantaneous. And as I thought about that, you know, that same mistaken identity often carries over to the church, as was said, too impatient to wait on God's timing and too lazy to work long and hard to make something happy happen. Many want instant church. Kinda you know, instant church where everything was what we want, when we want it, when we want it, and we want it now. You know, and as a result, many folks will be disappointed. But for this final message in this series that I've entitled, The Ideal Church, I came across a work by Warren and David Wearsby, a father and son team in ministry, that they have given the title, Making Sense of Ministry. And in their book, they give 10 statements about ministry that I challenge you to memorize, as these will be what I consider, if you've got your bulletins and the handout or the notes that will be there, the permanent principles of the church. I believe that these principles are biblically sound and they'll keep us on target as we move forward together as a church. So we're going to examine each of these principles and the scripture references that in my studies I have found to support each. And so if we're going to take a look at it, the first thing that I want to share with you is this. The foundation of ministry is character. Another word, a good word for that would be integrity. Integrity. You know, according to the Bible, integrity is from a Hebrew word that means whole, sound, unimpaired. Webster states that integrity means unimpaired condition of soundness. Adherence to a code of moral, artistic, or other values. The quality or state of being complete or undivided. When one has integrity, there's an absence of hypocrisy. He or she is personally, personally um, reliable, financially accountable, and privately clean or morally pure. They're innocent of impure motives. In Bartlett's familiar quotations, we read this, there is a certain blend of courage, character and principle, which has no satisfactory dictionary name, but has been called different things at different times in different countries. Our American name for it is guts. Integrity is not only the way one thinks but even more so the way that one lives or acts out their life. It's doing what you said you would do when you said you would do it. It's keeping your word, it's fulfilling your promise. It's having the guts to keep your word regardless of the personal cost or the consequences. You know, the Bible is filled with accounts of men and women who displayed this type of character or integrity. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 78 because when looking for a new king to replace Saul, God pursued a young man who had integrity. In Psalm 78, we read this of that man. Good verse, uh, starting with verse 70, the Bible tells us that God also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds and from the care of the hues and, and with suckling lambs he brought him to shepherd Jacob and his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with skillful hands. 1 Kings 9.4 again emphasizes the same truth, that God chose David because of the integrity of his heart. He shepherded the flock with the integrity of his heart. And if you know anything about the, uh, the choosing of David as far as the replacement of Saul, the Bible tells us that God doesn't look at the outer appearance of man as man does, but he looks at the heart. See, God saw David's heart. God knew this man's heart. And it says that he chose him because of the integrity of his heart. David's son Solomon writes of how a father's integrity marks his children for good. In Proverbs 27, where he writes this, A righteous man who walks in his integrity, how blessed are his sons after him. If you want to leave a legacy with your family, gentlemen, walk in integrity. A righteous man who walks integrity. The Bible says, how blessed are his sons who come after him. Because not only will we teach truth by our words, but more importantly, by our life. When our lips and our life are in unison or in harmony, it's hard to miss the message. But when we say one thing and do another thing, it's very confusing to those who hear us speak and see us live out our lives. Others of integrity that are found in Scripture, as I just kind of did an overview of all of it. I couldn't help but think of Joseph in Genesis 39 in Potiphar's house. He was a man who was sexually tempted by his boss's wife and he refused to give in to that temptation. The Bible says that his actions are indicative of a man who was a man of integrity. He said he would not do that because it was wrong before God and also before his master, his boss, this man's wife. He risked going to prison for doing what is right rather than give in to that which was convenient at the moment in time. Joseph was a man of integrity. The Bible tells us in 1 Kings 17, as we look at the life of Elijah, who went toe-to-toe with Jezebel and Ahab. And he didn't compromise the truth of God's message, even though he risked his very life to deliver the truth of what God had to say. He was willing to pay that kind of price. He was a man whose yes was yes, and his no was no. Nathan the prophet, as he confronted an adulterous King David, And he told the story of the one man who had taken that one sheep. He looked at David and said, you know what? You're that man. You're the man. And he didn't say it in the way we say "Yeah, David, you're the man. It wasn't that kind of you're the man. It was, no, you're that man. You are the one whom you just condemned. The story that was told by God to help you to, to see through the blindness of your sin. The wonderful thing about the objective Word of God, the living and active Word of God, is that God uses His Word to help us to see us from His perspective when often we're blinded by our own ambitions and even by our own actions. David was blinded by his sin and God used a messenger of God, the truth of the Word of God, to help David see how guilty he was. And when he recognized the guilt of the person he thought was someone other than himself, then Nathan wisely said to him, you're that man. And David was broken and humbled by his sin with Bathsheba. Psalm fifty one is a psalm that records it, inspired by the Word of God inspired by the Spirit of God as the Word of God. Here was a man who had done wrong, and yet God knew his heart that when he was confronted by what he did was wrong, he confessed his sin. And God is faithful and just as we learn to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, integrity doesn't mean that we're perfect. But it means that we own up to our mistakes, and to the best of our ability, we don't talk out of both sides of our mouth. We do what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it. It's not that we're perfect. David wasn't perfect. We know that, but here is a man that God says he was a man of integrity. There's hope for all of us. Stephen, as he was being stoned to death, did not back down on the truth of God's word. Even to the cost of his very life. When you've got time, read on your own Hebrews chapter 11 for an account of men and women who demonstrate what it means to be men and women of integrity, to have character. Of all the many examples from which we could choose, I've chosen Daniel chapter 6 to help illustrate what it means to be men and women of integrity. The ministry, the foundation of ministry is integrity. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 6, and we're going to take a look at four, four things that are true of Daniel's life as they display integrity, and to examine our own lives to see if we can say with a clear heart before God, with a clean conscience before God and man, that we are men and women of integrity. As we witness firsthand the integrity of Daniel in times of prosperity and adversity, you know, it's one thing to say that we have convictions uh, when we're not put to the test. You know, I, you know, I hear people all the time, you know, they've got convictions, but they really don't even know if they own those convictions until they're willing to pay a price. See, Daniel was a man who had convictions in times of prosperity and in times of adversity. It's easy to praise the Lord when we're going to Disneyland. You know what I'm saying? Hey, praise God! Hey, one, one, you know, won the Super Bowl! Yay, praise God! Going to Disneyland. You know, it's easy to do that. But can we praise Him in times of adversity? Can we lift His name up? Can we hold Him up high before the world in times of adversity? Can we, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, as they faced the fiery furnace, said, "You know what? I know, King, that our God is able to deliver us from this ordeal. But if He, even if He chooses not to." we still will trust in Him and not worship your God. Daniel, Daniel, was your God able to deliver you from the lion's den? O King, our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ever ask or think, and to Him be the glory. Ephesians 3.20 So as we look at this, Daniel was a man of integrity, and there are four things that were displayed in his life that I want to challenge us to take a look at individually as we read these words. It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they should be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, and that the king might not suffer loss. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Number one, as we look and stop at verse 3, we notice that Daniel stood out from the others and that he had an excellent attitude. If we're going to be men and women of character or integrity, there should be something about our attitude that's different than the world around us. I mean, he had such an excellent attitude as, as, as the king and others around him observed his life. He stood out from the crowd of folks with bad attitudes. And it was noticed by, in this case, his boss who said, you know what, the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. That he began to distinguish himself among those who were there. There was something different about his life extraordinary spirit doesn't have to do with the Holy Spirit living within as in the case of believers today it has to do with the fact that the man had a spirit about him that was different than those he worked with those who were around him on a daily basis when you saw him you picked him out and said man there's something about that guy's life that's different the question that I have that I've asked myself is this how's your attitude You know, what do others notice about your spirit in the environment that God has placed you In your family, or among your friends, or with your co-workers, or in your community. In those places where God has you, how do you distinguish yourself from all the rest who are there? What's fascinating is is that you think that such distinguishing character would stand out to the point where the world would applaud, but the problem is that doesn't always happen. And we need to be aware of that and understand that. It says because the commissioners and satraps began to try to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Notice that. But they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption. And as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. One thing that we got to recognize and understand is when we begin to distinguish ourselves among our peers... There's not always going to be people lined up saying, Praise God, it's wonderful that you're going to get the promotion over me. Man, I'm so glad. You know, if it can't be me, I'm glad it's you. That's not their attitude. It was like, Man, you know what? The the rumors were there. The writing was on the wall. People started to follow Daniel. And the others didn't want that to happen. So what did they do? They plotted to try to figure out a way to get rid of this guy. And yet, when they checked into his background, notice this. He was faithful in his work. He was faithful in his work. He did what he said he would do. He showed up on time. He fulfilled his duties without being watched. His yes was yes. His no was no. He wasn't double-tongued. He wasn't a man who spoke out of both sides of his mouth. Man, the guy, he stood out, not only with an excellent attitude, but by being faithful in his work. You know, it says of a deacon that a deacon shouldn't be double-tongued. It's a quality. And the word double tongue, as it has to do with integrity, means simply not speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Barclay writes of double-tongued, being double-tongued. He says, the Greek word means speaking with two voices, saying one thing to one and another to another. A deacon, and is going from house to house, and is dealing with those who needed charity, had to be a straight man. Again and again, he would be tempted to evade issues by a little timely hypocrisy and smooth speaking. But the man who would do the work of Christ's church must be straight, must tell it the way it is. Telling the truth, even though you know that what you're about to say isn't what the listener wants to hear, but telling the truth. How important that is for all of us. To tell the truth. Not to be hypocritical. Not to say what you think a person wants to hear because you know what you really have to tell them isn't what they want and they won't receive it, but you have to tell the truth. Anyone who leads God's church has to be a man of conviction when it comes to telling the truth. And any of us as believers, the bar is no less set for all of us. We've got to be people of integrity who tell the truth. Daniel was such a man are you a person of your word can people believe what you say sir when you tell your children that you're going to do something on a certain date do you do it unless something better comes up when you tell your wife that you'll do something when you tell your wife or family you're going to be somewhere or go somewhere or plan to do something do you follow up or if something better comes along do you kind of shove it in the back corner See, we need to be men and women of integrity. When you turn your expense account in at your, at your place of business, is it really what happened? Or are you managing the news? Everybody does it. But you know what? We're not to be conformed to this world. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That we know what God's will is. That's what is acceptable. Good, acceptable, and perfect. Daniel was such a man. Thirdly, he was committed to personal integrity. Notice this. He was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. They followed him. They asked questions about him. They checked his files on his laptop. They looked at his email records. They went through everything that they could and found nothing. It didn't stop them from making accusations. People can accuse one another easily at any time of the day, depending on their agenda. But they couldn't find find any evidence to convict them. They couldn't find, find anything in his personal relationships or anything beyond that. I had a gal come to me a while ago and said that she believed that her husband was having an affair. I knew him, and it was an opportunity to be able to confront him, and I said, what evidence do you have that I can use when I talk to him? And she pulled out three months of his cell phone records, and she highlighted for me the phone number of a gal that he worked with. Boom, 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 boom. And Stack was probably about this thick. So he came over to visit and he started to share with me how none of that was true. No, that's not true. It's not happening. I said, "Really?" Continued to talk for a while, gave him a couple more opportunities to be upfront about it. He wouldn't do it. So I pulled that out of my files. I said, "Is your phone number this? Your cell number?" "Oh, yeah, it is." I said, "Well, are these are phone bills." And man, the look on his face was like, "Oops." It was a Nathan confrontation with David. You're the man. You're guilty. I'm not stupid. You can blow smoke at everybody else you want, but I'm telling you right now, let's just look at these phone records. 45 minutes, 75 minutes, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, months of it, hundreds and hundreds of hours. No man develops that kind of relationship with a woman without looking for something deeper. And the bottom line is this. Even if he wasn't guilty of sexual sin, he was guilty of an appearance of evil. And he was guilty of causing fear in his wife because perfect love casts out all fear. And he was guilty of sin before God. To this day, he's never acknowledged and he hasn't repented we continue to pray. There's always hope because we've got a God of mercy and grace. But he promises only grace and mercy when we recognize our actions are wrong before God and we repent. Those who repent of their sins will find mercy before God, but those who conceal their transgressions will not. And there's nothing hidden from him to whom we have to do. And the reason I thought of that was is that it reminded me of a true story that I had read about when it came to personal purity. There was a man and a woman who went to a Kentucky Fried Chicken in Long Beach, California, and they drove through the drive-thru late at night, and they were getting a meal to take with them. And as they drove through the drive-thru, the night manager who was there handed them their food. What By mistake, He didn't hand them the food. He handed them the day's receipts, which he had hidden in a KFC takeout box so he could take to the bank and not worry about getting knocked off on the way there. You know, there's nothing like carrying a bag that says money on it. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's like, you know, so why why tempt people? But he had it in a Kentucky Fried Chicken box. So the man and the woman drove away, and and they went, and as they went to open up and have this picnic they were going to share together, it was like, wow, we should go here more often. (laughs) No, it wasn't that. They recognized that there was a mistake, and so he took it back to the Kentucky Fried Chicken and gave it back to him. The night manager was so happy that he came back, and he said, hey, well, you know what? Well, just wait here a second, I, you know, because I want to reward you, and I, I, want to, I want to call the newspapers and tell people what you have done, and, and I want to take your picture. And he said, oh, no, that's okay. You don't have to do that. He said, well, well, why? well no, I want to do that. This is a great story. And he said, well, the, the woman that's sitting in the car, I, I'm married, and she's not my wife. I said, can, can you imagine how confused we are at times about a standard of righteousness? But you know what happens all the time? It's like, well, I'd never, I'd never cheat somebody out of money, but this is different over here. See, and what appears to be integrity on the outside, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. When what what a man sows, he's going to reap. He knows what's going on on the inside. See, we can all come and play church. We can all come and play religious people. But at the bottom, the end, of the end of the day, the bottom line is this, is that we've got a God who knows our hearts. Not only does he know our name, but he knows everything about us just the same. See, Daniel was a man who, no matter what people did to find something on him, he came away clean. The question that I have for me and for you is this, How would you emerge from such scrutiny? How would you emerge if somebody would go through your checkbook register or your credit card bills or your phone receipts or all the other invoices that come in through your life? How would you emerge if people looked at your phone bills at your your office or your computer files? Would you emerge clean? Would you emerge as one with integrity? Would you emerge as one with character? Would you emerge as one who had the guts to do what is right before God, regardless of the consequences that we may face? Daniel was such a man. And the reason that we know it is because it goes on to tell us, then these men we shall find, These men said, we shall find no ground of accusation against this Daniel, unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Wouldn't that be great? The only way we're going to get this guy is we're going to have to find something that we can accuse him of as it relates to his consistent walk with God. And that was the fourth thing that stands out a consistent walk with God. A man or woman of integrity has a consistent walk with God. These commissioners and satraps came by agreement. There was a conspiracy to the king and spoke to him as follows King Darius, live forever. You, the man. All the commissioners, thats the living version, in case you guys were wondering where that came from. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the perfects, the satraps, the high officials, the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the documents so that it may be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document that is the injunction, a great example of pride coming before the fall, a man who was built up to the point where he was put above God, and as a result, one of, his, one of his personal favorite employees would now be condemned because of his foolishness in signing that law into effect. Now, when Daniel knew the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God as he had previously done. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. I want you to notice this man of character, this man of integrity, this man of conviction. He knew the law was signed and he knew if he continued to do what he had always done, pray to his God three times a day, that if he did that, he would be thrown into the lion's den and he would be killed for his faith. And it didn't stop him in the least. He went right back to doing what he was doing three times a day. They knew exactly where he would be. They knew exactly what he would be doing. They knew how consistent he was in his walk with God. You know, what's great is that, you know, for the last 25 years since I came to faith in Christ, you know, anybody who's ever wanted to rob our house would be able to do so with absolute impunity when it comes to where we are every Sunday morning. It's like clockwork. That consistency. Some of you know it. You've been going to your small groups, your Bible studies for years. It's consistent. That consistent walk with God. To have such consistency that the only way that anyone's going to find any accusation against us will have to be because we're so consistent in our walk with God, that's where they'll get us. Isn't that great? Praise God that any of us would be persecuted for his name's sake, considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ because of our consistent walk with God. May we all be like Daniel. You know, this past week I was in Tempe, Arizona again and I was talking to uh, David Eckstein, who happens to be the angel starting shortstop. And I was talking to him about his trip this last off-season. He was invited to go to Washington, D.C. to meet with President Bush with a group of other men. And he was, in, he was asked to bring a guest. And so being single, he brought his mom, which is great. And, and his mom was talking to the president, and, and President Bush said to her, she said, he said, Miss Eckstein, I just want to tell you that I love the way your son plays the game. I love the way he upholds the integrity of the game of baseball. He plays hard, but he plays according to the rules. He gives 100%. He's faithful in what he does. And I'm thinking, man, this is exactly what we just learned about Daniel. He's excellent at what he does. He gives 100%. And then he said this to her. He said, I may never be the greatest president in this country. But one thing I'm committed to do is to uphold the integrity of this office. And I thought, praise God for that. And I thought, for me personally, I may never be the greatest pastor in the world. I may never be what some of you expect a pastor to be. Well, yeah. (laughs) I I, I was going to change that. After I said it, being the man of integrity, I should have said, not maybe. I know that. (laughs) So I know that I will never be the pastor that some of you expect. But I will tell you this. I'll do everything I can in the power of God to uphold the integrity of the position of shepherding the flock of God. And I've got men in my life who will hold me accountable and smack me upside of my head if I ever get a little bit too high on myself than I should. Self-exam. Do we all have an excellent attitude? Do we distinguish ourselves from those around us with an extraordinary spirit? Are we faithful in our work? Do we do what we say we're going to do when we say we're going to do it without worrying about whether anybody watches us or whether anybody sees? A couple that are here, their son at a baseball game the other day, on Friday I believe it was, said something that he wasn't supposed to say and was asked about it and he owned up to it. And it's a great example of integrity. See, integrity is not making mistakes or being perfect. But it's taken responsibility f- for our faults. When we're wrong, we make things right by acknowledging the fact that we're wrong. And they asked him, Did you say that? And he said, Yes, I did. Then you're kicked out of the game and you're suspended for a game. And he knew the price, but he also understood that's what integrity is all about. Are you personally pure? Are we accountable? Even though accusations can be made, is there any evidence that could ever be used to convict? See, there's accusations made all the time. But I want to always live my life in such a way that those who accuse me, if they took that, quote, evidence to a district attorney, he'd look at them, laugh at them, and say, get out of here, we don't have a case. I would challenge you to be guilty of one thing, and that is this. Be guilty of consistency in your walk with God. Wouldn't that be great? That's all I ever want to be guilty of. Consistency in our walk with God. Number two, the nature of ministry is service. The nature of ministry is service. Have you ever noticed some people just don't know what to do with Christians? You know, when they find a person that is, quote, religious... You know, I saw an interview with Tim and Marcy Salmon that somebody wrote. And, you know, when they spent an hour and a half, this reporter spent an hour and a half with them, and they condensed that interview down to two words, uh, a deeply religious couple. <laughs> you know, everything they said, all that was there, you know, it's like, and I hear people all the time say, man, why don't players be more vocal about, you know, their faith in Christ? And you don't recognize and understand, they are, but you know what? It comes down to deeply religious. You know, that's the way it's all boiled down to. So, you know, some, you know, they, they, they'll, they'll try to hide their faults before us. I'll never forget once, I went to a hospital to visit uh, someone that was ill, and I, I saw a family that was there, some people that were coming to a Bible study I was teaching, and they were in an area that was a smoking area, and they saw me coming, and a guy who was smoking, he hit his cigarette behind his back. <laughs> this, is, this is great. So I just went over to him and said, man, how you doing, brother? What's going on? How you been? And he's standing in the back, and he's standing there like this, and there was smoke coming up the back of his head, and it was just like, it was just a classic, I wish I had a camera, you know, to capture the moment, and he was just standing there trying to hide, you know, and it was like, and all of a sudden the ash finally fell into the palm of his hand. And I was like, oh, 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 sorry. <laughs> it's like, you know, and you got people that are like that, you know, they try to hide. And then you got the people on the other side of it is that, you know, they're just, you know, hey, Jesus freak. You know, you're one of those people, goody two shoes, holier than thou, you know, preacher, friar, deacon. Hey, Deke, what's up, you know? And what they don't realize when they call somebody deacon, it's not because we have a holier than thou attitude. It's because it actually means we're humbler than thou. See, a deacon is a servant. And God tells us that the nature of ministry is service. Memorize this passage. Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give. His life a ransom for many. The nature of ministry is service. We are to serve others. And being a servant doesn't sound like much of a compliment, does it? You know, in fact, in the eyes of the world, it's not very popular today. And it wasn't popular in Greek days either. In Greek eyes, serving is not very dignified. Ruling and not serving is proper to a man. Being on top, telling people what to do, man, that's what men are all about. The formula of the sophist was, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That expressed the basic Greek attitude. Logically, they argue, a real man should simply serve his own desires with boldness and cleverness. And to them I say that that is exactly the opposite of what God calls us to do as His people. We are to serve one another. For even the Son of Man, if even the Son of Man, even God Himself in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, says, I came to serve and to give... (laughs) shouldn't we all isn't that the least that we could do if we follow his example you know the word is frequently used to describe the ideal christian behavior behavior that pleases god and will be richly rewarded by him i am so excited to be able to share with you my enthusiasm for the fact that so many of you understand what it means to serve and not to take we've seen it since day one a servant's heart, an attitude to jump in, roll up your sleeves, and get involved in service. We see it every week as people come and they serve in the worship band, and they serve you know, setting up the stage, they serve setting up chairs, they serve in the children's programs, they serve in all the different ministry teams. You know what? Praise God for people that recognize and understand that we are saved to serve our Master, and we are to serve Him with joyful hearts of great thanksgiving. Our goal here as a church is to get every person involved in serving in some way using the gift or gifts that God has given you. And we as leaders will serve by example so that you will be more than excited to follow. There's nothing worse than somebody telling you what to do and they're not doing it themselves. Hey, you know what? You got credibility if you start sharing with somebody how wonderful it is to serve our master. ...to serve the Lord Jesus Christ... We want a smile on our face... ...and we're doing it on a regular basis. Number three, the motive for ministry is love. To move a little quicker... ...the motive of ministry is love. We examined that in great detail... ...in the last three messages... ...that focused in 1 Corinthians 13. We should never underestimate... ...the enduring impact of God's love. This is a true story. A college professor had a sociology class... going to the Baltimore slums... ...to get case histories of 2,000 young boys... They were asked to write an evaluation of each boy's future. In every case, the students wrote, he hasn't got a chance. Twenty-five years later, another professor came across the earlier study. He had his students follow up on the project to see what happened to those boys. With the exception of 20 boys who had moved away or died, the students learned that 176 of the remaining 180 had achieved more than ordinary success as lawyers, doctors, and as businessmen. The professor was astounded and decided to pursue the matter further. Fortunately, they were told all the men who were were in the area and they were able to ask each this question How do you account for your success? In every case, the reply came with much emotion. There was a teacher. There was a teacher. The teacher was still alive, so he sought her out and asked the old but still alert lady what magic formula she used to pull these boys out of the slums of no hope into successful achievement. The teacher's eyes sparkled, her lips broke into a gentle smile, and she said, it's really very simple. The formula was this. I love those boys. I love those boys. And they knew she loved them. And it motivated them to get further than anyone would have ever given them any credit. How are you regularly demonstrating God's love? Review 1 Corinthians 13 on a regular basis as a self-examination. Check it off. Do Do you take into account a wrong suffered? Are you forgiving? Are you patient? Are you kind? Do you act unbecomingly? Do you boast? Look at that regularly. No other motivation will keep you going. No other motivation will be worth the sacrifice and the effort. The greatest motive for ministry is love. Number four, the measure of ministry is sacrifice. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. The bottom line of this is that he considered others more important than himself. A ministry of sacrifice. The measure of ministry is sacrifice. God will only bless us individually and collectively as a church to the measure of our willingness to sacrifice for the benefit of others. The Bible tells husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Sacrificially, giving us all for the body of believers. That you and I are to love sacrificiously. The measure of ministry is sacrifice. Number five, the authority of ministry is submission. That we have, been, we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That we have been given authority by God in Matthew 28 to look at that one more time as the great commission. We've been given authority. You know, we don't need permission to share the gospel with others. We have already been re, we've already received permission. And in fact, in Matthew twenty eight, eighteen, we read, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe you know, all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. There's a commitment there that he says, Look, you know what, just as Moses went to Pharaoh and said, and, and Pharaoh said, Hey, Moses, Moses asked God, whose authority shall I say sent me to ask if I these you know, people can leave? And God said, tell them I am. You know, you and I don't need permission to share our faith. What we need is obedience because we've already been told what to do. We just need to get it done. That's why I'm excited about Easter. That's why I'm excited about every outreach opportunity that we have so that we can tell others of their guilt before God, not for the purpose of reaping more condemnation on them because the world is already condemned, but to help them to see that because they're condemned, they need forgiveness and they'll go to the cross and trust in Christ as their Lord and their Savior, trusting in his death and, and also his resurrection so that they could be born again as you and I have in experience and tasted the kindness of God. Number six, the purpose of ministry is the glory of God. We saw that in great detail in one of our messages, but for now, memorize 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Ask yourself the question, is everything that I'm doing today, currently in my life, bringing glory to my God? That's a question that you could ask every week, every day, every hour, every moment. Is what I'm about to do, is what I'm about to say, is where I'm about to go, is it going to bring glory to God? And if not, don't do it. When in doubt, don't. And if you're not doing what is glorifying to God in your life, then repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and turn back to God. It's never too late to do what is right. You can never go wrong doing right. Number seven, the tools of ministry are the word of God and prayer. Acts chapter six, we read it very clearly that it's the word of God and prayer that we've got to guard faithfully the truth wholeheartedly, not distracted by the tyranny of the urgent, but to make sure that the word of God and prayer are the tools of ministry that we use on a regular basis at this church. That the Bible should be the focal point of every one of our get-togethers. That there should be some truth that's learned. And that everything that we teach should be bathed in prayer. The effective fervent prayers of a righteous man accomplish much, we're told in Scripture. And that we're to pray without ceasing. Make it a commitment to spend time in the Word of God and pray. Number eight, the privilege of ministry is growth. Numeric growth is not our goal. If the Lord counts us and considers us trustworthy and faithful, He will add to the numbers. It is not a goal. It is always a reward to those who are faithful in what they do. If you read Acts chapter 2 on your own, verses 41 through 47, we looked at in the first two messages in this, in this series, we're told that the Word of God was proclaimed, that the Word was received and believed and acted upon, and then God added to their numbers daily. It wasn't just a Sunday thing. It was every day. It was a lifestyle that attracted people to our Savior. A consistent Christian lifestyle like the one that we saw in the life of Daniel attracts others to the Savior that we say we love and believe. Number nine, the power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, and you, shall receive, you, you shall receive power. When you receive the Spirit of God, so that you can tell the world about Jesus Christ. And in fact, on the front of the bulletins that we pass out every week, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of God, the dynamite of God. It's not by by man's might or strength, says the Lord, but by my Spirit that God does His work. Is a work of God so that no man can ever take credit. It's awesome so that we can give awe and praise to the God who does all these things. And number 10, we're saving the best for last, is this in closing. The model for ministry is Jesus Christ. What would Jesus do? It doesn't get any simpler than that. Compassionate, loving, faithful, consistent, forgiving focused, a servant leader, what would Jesus do? I challenge you, as I'm challenging myself, to memorize these ten things because these will be the permanent principles of this ministry as we move forward. The foundation of ministry is character and integrity. The nation, nature of ministry is service. The motive for ministry is love and the measure of ministry is sacrifice. The authority of ministry is submission. The purpose of ministry is the glory of God. The tools of ministry are the word of God and prayer. The privilege of ministry is growth. The power of ministry is the Holy Spirit. And the model for ministry is Jesus Christ. God intended His love to be poured out through our lives and through our church. And when this happens, the world will take notice. In closing, consider the following written by the philosopher Aristides in the second century and still holds true today. He wrote, Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they've received those commandments which they have engraved on their minds and which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason they don't commit adultery or immorality, they don't bear false witness against others or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor their fathers and their mothers, and they do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge uprightly. They don't worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do, and they do not eat the food sacrificed to idols." Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of recompense that is to come in another world. As for their bondmen and bondwomen and their children, if there are any, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they have done so, they call them brethren without distinction. They refuse to worship strange gods, and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored, and they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who he who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They, don't call, they do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone but those who are brethren after the Spirit and after God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of their numbers who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it's possible to redeem him, redeem him they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst, and they do not have spare food, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for His goodness to them, and for their food and drink they offer thanksgiving. If any righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice and they thank God and escort his body as if it were sitting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, they praise God. If it dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for one who has passed through the world without sins. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins, they grieve bitterly in sorrow as over one who is about to meet his doom. Such, O King, is the commandment given to the Christians, and such is their conduct. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. My prayer and my hope is that we would be such a people and that we would be such a church. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and for these principles that were laid out before us that are biblically and and scripturally correct. Truth that'll change and transcend our lives. God, we just pray that we're willing to follow your leading patiently and yet work hard and long at those goals and, and things that you would have us achieve, not in our own strength or our own might, but in the power of your spirit. God, may our lives be such an example to those around us that we would not be in any way disqualified by the contradiction of our lips and our life. God, may our conduct and our creed, our lips and our life, the tongue of our shoe and the tongue of our mouths, go in the same direction that leads others to the cross. And we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.